One of the most overlooked side effects of leaving an abusive relationship is grief. It may be hard to believe and maybe even hard for some to understand, but there can be a lot of grief associated with ending an abusive relationship. Even if it was unhealthy, it was still a relationship. At some point, it was good. There was love and joy, even if it was brief. Have you ever wondered, why am I grieving the end of an abusive relationship? You've been through the cycles of the abusive relationship and trying for such a long time to escape the endless roller coaster of emotions. Your loved ones have encouraged you to get out and you finally took the very brave step to leave. You know that you had to get out, that it was the better alternative. But what confuses you and your loved ones are the intense feelings of grief you're experiencing. Well, this episode is going to get into all of that and more. Let's welcome Laura back to host this episode. Hi, thank you so much for having me again. I'm super excited to be back. You know, Laura, I think our listeners would really like to know how does someone process grief when it comes to domestic violence? This is going to be such a great episode with so much information, and I'm very excited that our very own Speak Your Truth board member and licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Dave, has joined me today to discuss grief and healing after leaving an abuser in hopes that it helps some of our listeners. Welcome, Dr. Dave. We're so excited to have you here today. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Sure thing. I'm um, super glad to be here as well. I'm on the board of Speak Your Truth today and had a lovely time um, doing a uh, trauma training on uh, a training on trauma-informed care with a lot of the um, SYTT um, leaders uh, over in Nashville, Tennessee, I believe, a couple months ago. Um, I'm a licensed um, clinical psychologist, and I'm also a professor of uh, clinical psychology uh, here at Fuller Seminary, and uh, do, I do research on trauma, and um, I also do a lot of writing on trauma and grief as well. So, um, so the topic to, uh, for today is just really um, something that is uh, uh, dear to me um, and really at the center of a lot of my work um, scholarly as well as uh, clinically with um, people. Awesome. Well, we're so excited to have you. I was actually going to bring up the fun fact for our listeners today um, that you did the, do the trauma-informed care training with us. Oh, sorry. I yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> all good. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was so good. And I know grief was one of the topics that we discussed. So I'm really excited to just review that with you again and uh, give our listeners the chance to learn about this as well. So um, with that, let's ju- jump right in. Uh, why does a survivor grieve the loss of an abusive relationship? Yeah, you know, I think um, when I think of any kind of relationship, um, even an abusive one, uh, it's usually a mixed bag. You know, I think uh, especially with abusive relationships, it's um, there's a part of us that wants to make it into a black or white or kind of an all or nothing thing where, you know, and we want to say that it was all bad. Um, and we find that even in abusive relationships that you really need to um, leave, uh, there are oftentimes where uh, there are a lot of good that's mixed in there, you know, uh, a lot of good in that person, a lot of good in that uh, relationship. Uh, perhaps it has to do with friendships that you made together as a couple. Um, and maybe even um, a lot of uh, good that was symbolically related to that relationship. Because I know a lot of us, 
uh, come into relationships with a lot of hopes and dreams um, of what a um, a marriage or a relationship will look like, what a future together might look like. And um, when we leave a, a relationship, even an abusive relationship, it involves multiple forms of loss. So all those kinds of things that we've you know, just talked about and more that we haven't thought of, um, we're, we're, we're dealing with uh, losing all of those things. And when we talk about loss, it could be you know, the loss of concrete things like, you know, a lot of times it's the loss of our home, uh, the place that we lived in, the loss of belongings that we shared um, uh, with uh, our, our, our partner or the loss of friendships. Or um, loss can also be symbolic where we have a sense of, you know, loss of ourself and our identity, you know, where we saw ourselves as someone who was uh, married or partnered, uh, the loss of love, the loss of um, a life that we hope to live. And, and also mixed into all that is uh, this idea of a loss of who they thought their partner was. You know, I, you know, a lot of us, when we first get uh, engaged or married or, um, uh, connected to a romantic partner, we have an idea of who they might be uh, and how we might fit in their lives. And um, and when we leave an abusive relationship, it's uh, uh, all those hopes and dreams and that idea of who we married or who we're with, that all gets um, thrown out the window and, and, and shattered. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of our listeners and members in the group can definitely relate to the hopes and dreams that were associated with that relationship I know I can certainly relate to that myself um, I think grief happens naturally after people experience loss but what do you think makes grief after domestic violence a complicated grief yeah well you know as we mentioned it's complicated because there's multiple forms of grief all at once you know and a lot of times we can't even name all the different things that we're in the midst of losing um, and I think I would add that a lot of times our culture doesn't know how to grieve well. You know, we have uh, friends and family that are well-meaning and who care about us, but a lot of times they push us towards, uh, you know, toxic positivity where they always want to look at the bright side of things and they want to encourage us to kind of uh, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And, you know, and, and there's a time for that. Um, but uh, when I'm in the middle of loss, um, I need a different kind of support. You know, and a lot of times hearing those things from, you know, people that we care about uh, can really complicate our grief. It can really um, keep us stuck in different, you know, phases or stages of grief. And a lot of times people uh, find themselves, you know, wandering in this wilderness where, you know, they are in grief, but they're asking themselves, should I be feeling this way? You know, I feel angry, for example, or I feel sad. But, you know, should I feel angry? Should I feel sad? Shouldn't I feel grateful for, you know, leaving? Or shouldn't I feel grateful for all these other things that came out of it? And, um, and that uh, oftentimes will, um, is, will uh, prolong grief longer than it needs to have. Um, and we'll probably talk about this uh, throughout the rest of our conversation. But, you know, um, there's some really uh, foundational research by Elizabeth uh, Kubler-Ross, who talks about the different stages of grief. And they include, you know, denial and anger and bargaining and depression and acceptance. And we can talk about each of these in, in, uh, uh, for, for a long time, but maybe for now, we'll just, you know, talk about, start with denial and how common it is for people to be in denial, 
you know, to, for them to be in this space where it's like, oh no, this person that I uh, am a partner with or I'm married, uh, he, he can't, he, he or she can't be that person, you know, and you're, you're, you're just stuck in this land where, uh, in this uh, no person's land where, uh, well, that, that person is acting like that person, um, but yet I'm, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm ready to uh, accept that reality, you know, and yeah. excuses and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I mentioned in uh, our Mythbuster episode, I actually mentioned that I, I was, after I left my abusive ex-husband, um, I was in a denial stage for a really mm -hmm. long time because I didn't want to identify with being a domestic violence survivor. So yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, you mentioned how people from the outside can have different effects on us as we grieve. Um, yeah. I think when you come out of an abusive relationship, especially when people don't have the experience with abuse, I think it can be very confusing for a survivor yeah. to properly grieve. And they can oftentimes, you know, question themselves and their feelings. You know, all my friends are telling me I'm so happy or they're so happy that I left the abuse, uh, but I'm still hurting. Um, so how important is it for survivors to get the appropriate support in the clinical world to pr process their grief? Yeah, great question. And and, and uh, my and the response is that it's crucial. It's absolutely mm -hmm. crucial. Um, though, you know, I also want to, to note that, you know, perhaps the one thing that's more crucial than that is our physical safety, you know, because a lot of times absolutely. with violence, um, uh, our, um, like our, our physical integrity and our physical safety is at risk. And um, I think maybe first relating this to the previous question, that's also another reason why grief is so hard because a lot of us don't have the luxury to grieve because we are busy focusing on surviving, you know, and yeah. making sure that not only we survive, but our loved ones are safe as well. And um, and that's why domestic violence is, uh, you know, a form of trauma, you know, and it shapes the way we see ourselves and other people in the world. And we just don't have the time and space and luxury to, to grieve. Um, so it's very understandable when we get stuck because we're focusing on very important things. But getting to this uh, immediate question about support, um, you know, seeking out and receiving help and support um, from people that we trust and people that we love, um, it's crucial to the recovery process. And in fact, the research on social support and uh, trauma and trauma recovery is that um, we find that social support is actually one of the most powerful determinants that uh, determines whether or not we um, uh, recover uh, and the degree to which we recover from uh, our trauma and the lack of social support and especially the presence of what we call negative social support like you know blame whether we blame ourselves or other people blame us it's actually one of the strongest predictors of post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, one study even found that social support or the lack of social support, it actually more strongly predicted whether or not you got a, a trauma survivor gets PTSD than other factors such as other uh, prior trauma history, prior mental illness, or even the severity of the trauma itself. I think that speaks, um, I, I was shocked when I read, uh, read that study, this idea of you know, how the people who um, are uh, in your, uh, social support network, how they respond to your trauma actually potentially dictates how your, rec uh, your recovery trajectory even more than what even happened in the trauma eventually, uh, originally, like the severity of the trauma itself. So that's, that's how powerful it is, um, uh, the social support that we receive, whether it's positive or negative, or uh, whether we get it or we're lacking it.
Yeah, absolutely. I actually very distinctly remember the moment that you told us about the social support aspect um, of healing and how quiet our room got when you said that. And I think that's the beauty of Speak Your Truth, really, to just be able to jump into a room and you have 18,000 members that mm. went through the same thing or are going through the same thing right now. So it's, it's definitely powerful. Yeah. Um, do you have any suggestions for our listeners how they can work through the grief process in a safe and healthy way? Yeah. Um, so, you know, like we talked about earlier, reaching out for help is really um, a solid place to start, you know, and um, when, when people develop uh, conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder, it, it's usually an indication that there's some epic failure, not necessarily with them, but with their social support system or that they don't have a support system, that they're, you know, isolated. And that's where, you know, communities and resources like Speaker Truth Today, we can really step in and make a big difference. And I, I think we, the proof is in the pudding. We we're already, already can see so many stories of um, positive impact from people who live all around the country, you know, just offering their support and sentiments and uh, like that uh, is not a small thing. Um, uh, other suggestions on how to work through grief. Um, I think the other place to start is that, um, you know, grief really looks differently from individual to individual. So there's really no uh, quote unquote right way to grieve, you know, so um, I think that's a good starting point because I think all of a lot of us will struggle with should statements like, well, shouldn't I be this far in the grief process? Shouldn't I be feeling this way instead of that way? And whenever we hear the word should, it's uh, should is the the opposite of the language of acceptance. It's a should is a language of non-acceptance and grief is a journey that takes us towards acceptance, you know, so shoulds is kind of going the opposite way um, of grief. And um, the other thing I would uh, uh, share and note is that grief, it kind of has a life of its own, you know, it um, goes at the speed of life. I, I like that term. I heard it from a professor a number of years ago that um, we can't make it go faster, but we can certainly slow it down uh, and and get stuck along the way. So, um, so for me, um, speaking as a psychologist, I feel that a healthy grief is actually a grief that moves. You know, so if you find yourself angry for a few weeks, and then the the next week you feel um, sad, and then you're kind of going back and forth, um, that to me is a grief that is moving. Or if it's a grief where you're angry for two weeks at, um, at your partner, and then the week after you're angry at somebody else who contributed to the situation. Uh, like for example, when I work with survivors of um, childhood abuse, you know, oftentimes there's gonna be a season where um, the survivor is gonna be angry at one of the parents that was the you know, perpetrator of the abuse. And then after that process ends, the anger stays, but it shifts to another focus. You know, for example, like uh, it moves from dad to mom. Uh, and then suddenly we realize, well, now that I've, I'm done ang being angry at mom, or at least for now, I'm done being angry at dad for all the things he did. Now I have the luxury and the freedom to realize where the hell was mom in all this? And now I'm angry about mm -hmm. that, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so even though it's the, the same emotion of anger, it's shifting from person to person, it's shifting from place to place. 
And that too is a form of, um, of healthy grief because I'm actually processing, emotionally processing um, what's going on. And I'm making sense of what's going on, including all the nuances and uh, the, the full context of uh, everything that was in the background. So Dr. Dave, you mentioned um, some of the different stages of, of grief. There's seven total. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on how they look like and um, can people skip stages? Does it have to be in a certain, you know, row of stages? Like first we go through grief, then we go through or grief. <laughs> we go through <laughs> denial and then anger. Can, do we, I guess the question that I have is, can we skip them? Can we mix them? Once we're done with denial, are we done with denial forever? How does that look? Right, um, and absolutely. So um, perhaps initially when Kubler-Ross first talked about the stages of grief, there was a initial understanding that perhaps, you know, one precedes the, you know, following or, you know, um, and they go uh, linearly one after another. Um, and we, we're realizing um, more recently that that's not the case. You know, uh, everyone grieves uh, in their own way. And some people will uh, skip certain stages. Some people will uh, go forward and then go backwards. And, you know, and they might go through a season of denial and then they move to anger and then they might go back to denial and um, they move straight to depression. And, and, um, and a lot of times, like uh, as we talked about earlier, um, perhaps we might go back to a familiar emotion but uh, we come back to that emotion at a different part of our journey where we have um, kind of processed certain details of uh, our journey and our story and our experiences. And because we've done the hard work of processing those early details, that gives us the freedom to, to grieve and process new details of what happened. Um, so it's very understandable if we, um, as we encounter these new perspectives and these new pieces of information that we haven't thought about before for us to um, uh, revisit some of these older um, emotions, you know, and um, Kubler-Ross talks about denial as oftentimes the, you know, the first or some of the early stages of grief. Uh, anger is another uh, common uh, stage in grief. And um, you know, what, what I oftentimes encounter uh, in my clinical work with people who are uh, in the middle of grief is that a lot of people get stuck in, in this anger phase where um, they feel like they shouldn't be angry, you know, like that perhaps if they're angry, it means they're a bad person, you know, or a, a bad mother or a, you know, a bad fill in the blank, you know. And um, because that, you know, their belief that, well, I, I, you know, I would not be a good person if I'm angry, maybe I shouldn't feel, feel angry, you know, and then that coexists with the reality that they're angry, you know, and um, they're always kind of stuck in this back and forth of, well, I'm angry, but I shouldn't feel angry, and I, I'm angry, but I should feel angry, and um, a lot of that, that'll contribute to self, you know, self-blame, self-loathing, like, oh, this is my, my fault, um, um, I shouldn't feel this, you know, so again, the, you know, the shoulds. Um, and the, the thing with anger is that um, telling your, your anger that uh, you shouldn't feel angry, uh, you know, that, that's actually the best way to make you feel more angry. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because your, your anger is, 
um, it's bearing witness to something really important. It's trying to tell you something really important. And when you try to stuff it down and um, not listen to what it's trying to tell you, um, the, the, the anger is going to increase because the purpose and the function of anger is to uh, communicate something important either to ourselves uh, or to other people. So I found that when people come in uh, to therapy, for example, for anger management, a lot of times what they have in their mind is, well, I want to learn these tools to, um, you know, dispel my anger, to, um, to kind of quell it. And, and those are still important because if we're in the moment and we're feeling really angry, we, we do need those coping skills to keep us from escalating or doing things that we will later regret. But in the long run, really, the, 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 um, the, the, in my opinion, the, the most effective way of um, quelling anger is to hold and to listen well um, what that anger is actually trying to say. And I find that when, you're, when you dig deep enough, there's always something very valid for that, that that anger is trying to bear witness to. And if we can pull that out and validate it and hold it and go, thank you for that anger, because I really needed to hear that. Um, and every time your anger uh, quells up uh, and it, it becomes triggered, uh, in addition to all the other techniques that we might learn, which are helpful as well, I, I would suggest we should add an additional response, which is, hey, anger, thank you, because I know you're telling me something really important. And you know what? I hear it. I hear you. That, that is really important. Thanks for telling me that. We'll, we'll keep that in mind as we move forward. Yeah, I, I love that you make it sound like you're almost befriending the emotion. Uh, I know being angry for a while can be, you know, very stressful, very concerning, very, you know, like you want to move forward. And I think, like you said, you sometimes can become more angry being angry. So I really love the idea of just befriending those emotions and yeah, thanking it, thanking it for showcasing us what's going on with with us in that very moment mm -hmm. um another question that i have if sure. i'm a family member or an outsider a friend to a survivor okay. and i see my friend struggle through an emotion uh should we ever express concern if someone is in a stage like denial or anger for years yeah um you know i think that's uh, you know for a a friend or a family member, someone that, you know, a loved one uh, observing, uh, you know, their, uh, their friend um, uh, struggle uh, through different stages of grief, like, especially with denial. I, I think that's one of the most difficult things. You know, it's almost as if we are, you know, witnessing a car crash or a train wreck before it happens. And we see the cars moving towards each other. And we want to just go, hey guys, stop, you know, you need to do something different. And, you know, I see this uh, potential, you know, uh, crash coming and I want to do something, everything I can to avoid this, from, uh, keep this from happening, you know? And um, even as a psychologist, um, I, I, I can relate to that feeling. And I found that sometimes, especially when somebody's in denial, the more we, we want to push and the more we want to uh, be forceful and, and try to shake them out of it, the more they're going to hide in their denial. And, um, and, and I feel like 
grief is uh, something that um, we can only take one step at a time. And the person taking those steps, ha they, ha they have to be willing to take those steps. We cannot bring a person, um, at least in the, in, in the, the field of psychology, we, we don't have techniques where we can go inside and change someone's motivation and yeah. bring someone from, you know, uh, not wanting to go into their grief to wanting to go in their grief. Um, that's unfortunately out of our control. And that's where perhaps as friends and loved ones, uh, where we have to enter into our own journey of grief as well, where we, mm -hmm. you know, we have to uh, accept the limitation, our limitations of, you know, I, I, we want to help, we want to save people, but um, we might even be very accurate in what we're diagnosing, and it might even turn out exactly how we, we anticipate it, but, um, but we have limitations as well, and we, a lot of times we can't, um, we can't change these things uh, in life as well, that's something we need to grieve. Yeah, absolutely. Is there a difference between griefing and mourning? Hmm. I think there's a lot of overlap between the two. Mm -hmm. I think perhaps grief talks about the, the, the entire journey and perhaps mourning is, uh, you know, how some of that grief is expressed along the way. You know, do we cry openly? You know, I think some people will mourn by, by crying. Some people will mourn in different ways, uh, maybe more symbolically. Um, that's how I understand the terms, but I haven't checked the de uh, the, the the textbook definitions of, of mourning uh, just yet. Yeah. Perfect. For but, but depending our on culture, um, I think. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I do think that different cultures will mourn and grieve in different ways, you know, and that's also something important for us to keep in mind that. Um, some cultures may be uncomfortable mourning or grieving in some ways, whereas other cultures are much more uh, open and comfortable doing that. And, and we can, we want to find ways. Um, I think that the, the specific manner in which we, we do the mourning, uh, I'm not, uh, I think there's a lot of flexibility and freedom there. Um, I think for me, um, what's important is that it's coming out in some way and it's being held in some way. Um, I, I remember, I just learned about this new uh, definition of trauma and it's uh, defined as um, a trauma is what happens when our um, uh, deep emotional pain cannot find a relational home in which it can be held, you know? And, um, you know, mourning and grief is a way of holding our intense emotional pain, you know, and and I think the journey of grief is this journey of uh, learning how to hold our own pain, you know, and social support is a way where we can model how to hold pain, but ultimately we need to learn how to hold our own. And I think it's just so common for us to be able to hold other people's pain but not hold our own. It's almost as if, you know, other people deserve or, you know, deserve compassion. They, they are, are worthy of empathy um, and their pain is, is worthy of our, you know, compassion and empathy. But for whatever reason, we don't believe that applies for our own pain. You know, like other people's pains, are, it's, it's worth all those things, but just not ours, you know? And, yeah. um, and that just feels so human. 
you know, I, I see that so commonly uh, in, in people that I know and people that I work with. Yeah, I, I can extremely relate to this. We see that almost on the daily in our support group. Um, I think one of the most beautiful advice that I was given um, when I got to the stage of acceptance, I think, when everything just came in and I accepted I was a survivor of domestic violence, um, yeah. I identified as such. One of my friends said, just allow yourself to feel you're allowed to feel those emotions you're yeah. allowed to be angry you're allowed to be happy about the good times um and it was very confusing so yeah give yourself grace yes um and give yourself permission i love that language yeah going and giving permission yeah absolutely what would you say is the most important thing that we can do for a grieving survivor? Yeah, um, you know, kind of relating to, to what we're, we're talking about just now, I think um, the most important thing is that we can be a relational home to hold their pain, you know, and, um, and for different people, they, uh, you know, different people will prefer and respond well to different forms of holding their pain, you know, and uh, sometimes to hold somebody's pain, you don't actually have to say much or anything, you know, sometimes to hold someone's pain, you just have to look them, look at them directly, you know, that when they share something that's painful or maybe uh, a negative emotion that might be shameful, I think we communicate quite a lot when, even if we don't say a word for us to lean into them, for us to look at them, you know, and for us to demonstrate with our body that we're not taken aback by what they're feeling or sharing, you know, and it, I you know, it's also helpful to say those things too, you know, but I feel like the nonverbals oftentimes will, will, will speak more, you know, and I, I know a lot of us, we feel, uh, we can feel insecure and we can feel really worried about, hey, am I saying the right thing, you know, and, um, and I think being honest with that is okay too. You know, um, and when all else fails, just say, you know, I'm really, thank you for sharing that with me. I believe you and I'm here for you. And what you're sharing to me makes a lot of sense. And I'm here with you. And I might need a little training and a little teaching for, uh, feedback from you on how I can walk with you. Um, but I just want to let you know that I'm here, uh, here for you, you know, and if, you know, people can say something as simple as that, instead of a lot of the other stuff that unfortunately get spoken to people, um, then I think we can do a lot of good. You know, I think sometimes we get into trouble when we try to fix things, you know, and we try to get to the bottom of stuff without, um, so where we, we, we think of it as like a, a problem that needs to be fixed um, or a question that needs an answer. Uh, when in reality, it's really a person that needs to be accompanied, a uh, a, a tragedy that needs someone to bear witness to. That is the name of the game, bearing witness to uh, somebody's story and relationally walking alongside somebody through whatever uh, roller coaster, whatever, uh, whatever places they need to be in. Yeah, I hear you, I believe you, I'm here for you. Those are all very, very powerful statements. Um, before we wrap up today's episode, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, um, 
you know, I think another uh, another thing that is really common among people in grief is um, what Kubler Ross talks about uh, is the the bargaining stage. You know, and uh, the bargaining stage usually is connected to self blame. You know, and it's connected to some kind of if I had just done this, then this wouldn't have happened. You know. Um, you know, what was that one song about? Like, I should have bought you flowers, you know? <laughs> There's the should statements again. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, you know, a lot of times when I hear, I, I love that, the, the tune and the music, but as a psychologist, yeah. I hear, if it came down to you buying flowers or not, that probably was not a relationship. <laughs> <that you could laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but it's really tempting for us to um, go into those if and but and whens like if if I just did this if I listened better if I saw this earlier if I you know then I wouldn't have to go through all that grief all the all this loss and you know all these consequences you know and um and and I feel like the reality is usually the exact opposite of you know no matter what you've done you would have ended here anyway like and and I and I we don't wish anyone to go through this, but uh, you know, really, all all the paths lead us to this point, and um, and it's uh, you know the language of acceptance is, you know, I still don't like it. I still would have preferred something else, and that's fair, and that's totally fair. And at the same time, this is the reality that we're in right now. So, let's go through it. Let's Wonderful. let's do what I need to do to to go through, yeah. Instead of second guessing and and uh, and and I think a lot of what uh, is so appealing about this is that we get to retain a sense of control. You know that if it really was uh, true that if I just did this, then none of this would have happened. Then uh, then I can believe this um, very uh, tempting um, falsehood or delusion that. I'm in control of this, you know, when in reality, there is a lot of things I'm in control of, but there's actually a lot of things that I'm not in control of as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dave. Um, this has been an absolute joy. Um, I love talking to you and learning more about trauma and grief. So thank you so much. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. All right, listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode where Laura interviewed Dr. Wang. Remember, he is a licensed clinical psychologist that sits on the Speak Your Truth Today board. He also conducts research and teaches courses in trauma therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, multicultural psychology, and the integration of psychology and the Christian faith. Go ahead and visit his website, www.drdavidc.com. W-A-N-G.com. That's www.drdavidcwang.com for more information.